Amen. Amen. I asked Margie to pray uh, because our missions emphasis for the week, if you see on your bulletin, is disaster relief. All right? uh, if you don't know Margie Holloway and some of the things God has allowed her to do, you need to. And so uh, if that's of any interest at all, pull her aside and say, hey, Margie, tell me about your latest trip. You might hear a story or two that might be worth listening to. Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we would invite you to take that one home. We value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe that it's the, the tool that God uses to shape His church into who He wants us to be. We believe it's the primary means by which He gives us to make us, Himself known to us as His people. And so uh, the, the Scriptures are not just valuable to us, they're they're life-giving to us, and uh, we believe they're effectual and do what God intends for them to, to do. And so if you don't have a, a copy of the Bible outside of here, please take that one and call it yours. All right? uh, if you want a nicer Bible, I hear there's some accumulating in the lost and found in the hallway. All right? And so just scratch your name off, rip the dedication page out, and you have a nice Bible. All right? I'll buy you one, but those are free. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we are getting pretty deep now into a series that we've been in since July uh, called To the Saints. It's a, it's a series uh, on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we, we're calling it To the Saints because that's who the saints are. It's a church. It's a group of people that God has declared holy because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. They place their hope and their trust in him. They don't bring anything to the table themselves, but he declares them to be holy. The biblical word that we would use is justifies them. All right? that They are declared righteous, declared holy. And so it's not this venerated class of people like some other people would teach. No, the saints in the Bible, whenever you see that word, is the church. It's normal people who have been declared holy by God because they put their hope in God. And so we're, we've been calling our series To the Saints uh, because we're walking through Paul's instructions for this church. And so we're a little over halfway through the letter now, uh, but we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Verse 7. But... Time out. Some of y'all are catching the picture here. But is a word that requires context, right? If you start anything that you're reading and it starts with the word but, it's in, it's in response, reaction to what just came before, right? And so we've spent the last three weeks now uh, just kind of hammering the first six verses first eight or so verses of Ephesians chapter four, all right? And so I was up here last week. We talked about Lord's Supper stuff. I was up here the week before that. We talked about uh, uh, the, the transition of the therefore in verse one. And then a couple weeks before, or a week before that, Les Duncan was up here and faithfully taught verses one through eight. And so we've just been hammering over and over and over again this idea of unity in the church, right? Those of you who, who haven't been here, you can go back and check out the podcast stuff if that's of interest to you. But we've been talking over and over again, just kind of beating a dead horse about unity, 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 unity. That we are one body, united under one Lord, in verse 5, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We've been hammering unity. That the church, when the church is operating like the church ought to operate, when the church is what the church is supposed to be, we outpace the rest of the world in unity that's found here. But then Paul, in verse 7, says, but. So even though there's unity here, he's about to draw a distinction, right? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure 
of Christ's gift. So even though there's unity here that goes far beyond what anything else in the world can offer, Paul says, hey, listen, listen, you are one, you are united, but you're not some monolithic thing, right? We're made up of all these different parts that are unique. The church, when it's operating as the church should be, is a place of unity that that the rest of the world can't understand. But you're not simply absorbed into the mass and lost forever. The beauty of the unity of the church is that instead of just being one homogenous thing, we are this beautiful mosaic of pieces brought together in a way that the rest of the world is just dumbfounded by. He says... But we were, what does verse 7 say? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. That each one of us comes to the table with different giftings, with different passions, with different skill sets, with different attitudes and experiences. According to, to the measure of whose gifts? To Christ's gifts, right? Let's talked about this a few weeks ago. We're one, but we're not all the same. We've each been given distinct gifts according to Christ's purposes. And that's great news for some of y'all. Because some of y'all wouldn't want anything to do with what some other people around here are passionate about doing. Right? We had a, a little snafu, if you want to call it that, uh, Wednesday night. Uh, those of you who got Jim Dempsey's email know this. Right? Uh, we've had some electrical problems on the stage. We had a bunch of outlets that weren't working. And, and Jim's an electrical engineer. He just thinks in those kind of ways, and, and so when he, he, was, he was sick for a while and, and was away, and when he came back, we were like, hey, Jim, you want to take a look at the outlets? And man, you should have seen him light up. Wheels started turning his head. He started looking for ways to figure stuff out. Man, it's just like a, like a calculator going off, and he starts opening up boxes, and he goes downstairs, and he runs back up. He's mess, messing with breakers and all these kinds of things, and he ends up fixing the problem. The fire department also comes out, but he ends up fixing the problem. Let him tell you that story later. But we had an electrical problem in our building, and Jim, because God has just wired him that way, and yes, pun intended, because God has just kind of wired him that way, he jumped on it, man. I should never be touching live wires. And if I were doing it, the fire department would have come out a lot sooner, and we probably would not have had a building to meet in this morning. Jim Dempsey and I are not the same at all. And it's by God's design, right? Some of you are teachers, right? Some of you would scrub toilets for a week to avoid teaching a small group class even once. (laughs) Call me a liar. (laughs) By the way, we have some openings on our cleaning teams. God has just kind of created us with all these different distinctions and personalities and, and skill sets and the things that drive me don't drive you. And, and there's, there, those are flipped in some ways. And, and all of this, every ounce of it is by God's design, Paul teaches us. That God has given gifts as he sees fit. Not, not our, our self-identified, I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to be passionate because I'm going to serve this way, this way, and this way because that's what I want to do to succeed. No, no, no. Each one of us brings these gifts that God has given to us to the table here to serve the church according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verse 8 says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Let's mention a few weeks ago that this is a paraphrase of Psalm 68, right? Right? 
Uh, those of you who are here, Psalm 68 is all about the victorious king, if you want to go read it uh, for homework after we're done. The victorious king who ascends the mountain in victory. Because of his victory, he gets to ascend to the top of the hill, and he gets to take and give the, the spoils of war as he sees fit, because he's the victorious king, right? Les talked about that last week, but look at the next verse. I didn't let Les preach on this part. In verse 9, there's a little parenthesis there. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So who's it talking about? Jesus, right? Paul paraphrases a psalm about another king who is victorious to talk about Jesus who is victorious. And so ascending isn't about climbing some dumb mountain. It's about ascending into heaven, right? That's what Jesus did, if you didn't know. After defeating sin and death, the victorious king ascended. And Paul says in his little parenthetical statement, apparently, love Paul, apparently Paul loves parentheses. Have you noticed this? In Paul's little parenthetical statement, he says, he calls a timeout and clarifies. He says, Jesus had to first descend in order to ascend. Basically, his logic is that because Jesus is the one that can go up and down and you and I can't, how about we let him be the boss, right? Sound fair? You got a better plan? No? Okay, good. Jesus is in charge. All right, so Jesus is the one who gets to give gifts as he sees fit, right? Jesus is the one who owns everything, all these giftings, like Margie prayed. Not just physical and material things, but even the things he's impassioned us about. Jesus is the one who has the right to give them out as he sees fit. Look at verse 11. And he, Jesus, Paul concludes his little parenthetical statement here. He goes back to what he was talking about. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So Paul returns to talking about the gifts that Jesus has given to the church. And instead of talking about a bunch of stuff, he starts talking about people, right? That seems strange. Like, I mean, when we talk about gifts, don't we normally talk about stuff? He says he gives gifts to the church and he lists a bunch of people. A lot of people teach that these are offices in the church, leaders in the church. The more thought I gave to it this week, I don't think Paul's talking about leaders here. I think he's talking about spiritual giftings. I think he's talking about spiritual giftings. Now, some people would say that it's leaders, and, and there's not too much of a, of a distinction there because the people who have these spiritual giftings are most often elevated into leadership in a church. And so there's not really a big divide there. We're still talking about the same people. But I don't think he's talking about offices in the church. I think he's talking about giftings given to people for the church. And I can, I can point that out in two specific ways. One, there are other offices in the church that he doesn't mention here. So at the very least, it can't be an exhaustive list. I mean, we know that deacons is an office in the church. He doesn't mention deacons, right? So at the very least, if he's talking about offices, it's an, it's an incomplete list. But there's also a theme to the gifts that he does list that we need to pay attention to this morning. There's a, there's a common thread running through the four things he does mention. So let's just work through them real quick. He starts by, by talking about apostles, right? So when we first began this series back in July, we talked about Paul being an apostle. We said that, that, that he was personally commissioned by Jesus, like personally commissioned, not just commissioned, but personally commissioned by Jesus, and that he was preaching with the authority of Jesus, not his own authority, but Jesus' authority, so that when Paul spoke, 
Jesus spoke, right? That Paul, as an apostle, came with authority. And so when Paul writes this letter, are, are there still apostles in the church? Yeah, he is one, right? What about now? Has there anybody in here been personally commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel? Like he showed up and said, hey, buddy, I want you to do it. Didn't happen to me. Anybody in here speaking with the authority of Jesus himself? Not me again. So there, there aren't still apostles in the church. That was a first century thing. There's no apostolic su- succession. It's not handed down to the next guy, to the next guy. There were apostles. And so apostles don't exist anymore with a capital A. But there's a difference between an apostle with a capital A and an apostle, apostle with a lowercase a. The spiritual gift of apostle is still very much in play today. An apostle, we said back in July, was a word that the early church just kind of usurped, kind of took to their own to talk about that office, to talk about those people uh, who had special authority. But what did it originally mean? Just a messenger, right? That was the, that was the Greek word for messenger, apostolos, okay? All right, and so that, that word is just a messenger. Now, the early church took it to mean something else, made it into something else, but it still means messenger. Someone who crosses borders and cultures. And carries a message from a faraway land. Who speaks that message in an attempt for those other people to hear it and understand it and believe it. So when I mention those things, what do you think of? Missionaries. And when missionaries take spiritual gift assessment tests, and yeah, those are a thing. When they take those tests, they usually score very, very high in the gift of apostles. God has just kind of gifted them to cross cultures well, right? God has just kind of gifted them, enabled them beyond what a lot of other people are able to to go into other places, difficult places, unique and hard to understand places, and preach the gospel in a way that the people in those places can grab a hold of. That's what a missionary does. Is that still in use in in the church today? Yeah. What's next on the list? He says prophets, right? Again, there's a distinction between the office of prophet with a capital P and the gift of prophet with a lowercase p. Prophets in the Old Testament were men who stood up and said, thus says the Lord, and then whatever came out of their mouth next was written down as scripture. Does that exist in the New Testament? Now God led the writers of the New Testament to to write scripture, but it wasn't a thus says the Lord experience standing on the mountaintop. Prophets in the New Testament look different, right? Think John the Baptist. What was his job? To call out sin, preach the gospel faithfully in a culture that was difficult to preach it in, right? So much so that it ended up costing John the Baptist's head. Prophecy in the the New Testament is most often associated with preaching truth in the midst of a culture filled with sin. Doesn't mean that there aren't other examples of that. I think that probably still exists, maybe. But prophecy in the New Testament is always, or at least almost always, more about thus says the Lord and then showing them Scripture. Even when the culture around you wars against you. 
Do we still have that in the church today? Do we still need that in the church today? Yeah. The church desperately needs people who will faithfully stand in the midst of a, of a culture that would be against them, the culture that would revolt against that message even. Stand there faithfully. Stand there resolutely. Man, we need people like that. What about evangelists? What do evangelists do? Preach the gospel who don't know it yet, right? They preach the gospel to people who don't know it yet. While some people hold the vocational position of evangelists, like go from place to place and travel around and, and preach the gospel in these big meetings or in churches and all these kinds of things, some people, some people just have the gift of evangelism. You've ever noticed that? They seem to preach the gospel in a way that's more articulate than anybody else around them. And here's what's really crazy. People seem to respond better to them than anyone else. Like there are people in your life that you really want to share Jesus with and you're afraid that they'd punch you in the face if you did. But if somebody with the gift of evangelism went and shared with them, like their response would be like, you know what, absolutely, you're right. That's exactly what I need to do. They just kind of have this weird ability that God's just kind of blessed, right? And people respond to the gospel being preached because God uses them. The, the job, the role of an evangelist is to preach the gospel to those who don't know it yet. What about shepherds and teachers? What do they do? They proclaim and apply the gospel to those who are already a part of the kingdom, don't they? They remind the church over and over and over again what the gospel has done and what the gospel is doing to those who already trust it. So you may be asking, um, why are those two things lumped together? It's because Paul lumps them together in the Greek, right? They, they share a conjunction. It's weird if you know Greek. Each one of those other things gets their own conjunction, and this, and this, and this, and then those share one, and so Paul smashes them together in the Greek, right? And so uh, it's probably more faithful to say that's, that's somebody who shares those two gifts together, shepherds, teachers, right? Their job is to come alongside those who already love Jesus and proclaim the gospel in their lives. Remind them of it over and over again. Point them to how they, they fit into the story of what God's doing. Does that mean that all shepherds are teachers and all teachers are shepherds? Nope. We just said a, a minute ago, right, that this is not an exhaustive list of offices in the church. So there are people who are teachers who aren't shepherds, right? There are people who are shepherds who aren't teachers. But there's a, there's a theme that's going on here. What, what's the theme? Have you noticed? right? They're proclaimers of the gospel. The apostle proclaims the gospel in foreign cultures. The, the prophet proclaims, uh, proclaims the gospel in their own culture when it's against them. The evangelist proclaims the gospel who the, to those who don't know it yet. And the shepherd's teachers proclaim the gospel to those who do. Every bit of this is about proclaiming the gospel. Paul says that Jesus gives gifts to specific people in the church to proclaim the gospel in all of these ways. Now, does that mean that the rest of us don't proclaim the gospel in these ways? No, it doesn't mean that. Every one of us is at times called to go to a culture that's not our own and proclaim the gospel. Every one of us is called when we have opportunity to speak prophetically in the culture around us and be clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not, right? Every one of us, when we have opportunity, is called to evangelize friends, neighbors, family members, all of the above. 
And every one of us is called to come alongside those who are hurting, come alongside those who are growing, come alongside people in the church and remind them of what, God, uh, what the gospel is doing, right? That's, that's an everybody kind of deal. But at the same time, God is just kind of specially equipped certain people with specific capacities to do these things very, very, very well. Why? Verse 12. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So those gifts don't for one second exist for the improvement or the advancement of the ones holding them, do they? They exist for the service of the larger church body. They exist for the service of the larger church body. Um, Paul says that these people exist in order to equip the saints. So who are the saints? Everybody, right? All of God's people. Paul says that God raises up gospel-proclaiming leaders to equip them. So what does it mean to equip them? To give them what they need, right? Equip them to do what? For the work of ministry, right? But I thought that was the pastor's job. And maybe what a lot of churches put on their pastor's job description. But it's not the role of a pastor according to Ephesians 4. This is why you will see me shy away from being called a minister around here. It's why I will sometimes when I catch myself, refer to, past, uh, to JB as a pastor. It's because I want to stay away from the minister title. Because according to the Bible, a minister is any follower of Jesus who is participating in ministry, right? It's not this special office in the church. You don't see that in the Bible. It's, this, it's anybody who is participating in ministry. Now, does that mean that that ministry doesn't happen through me, not even for a second. But all of us, if you know Jesus, are called to be ministers. Whether evangelizing your neighbor, or visiting someone in the hospital, or counseling, or serving in various capacities, these are the job of the entire church, according to Ephesians 4. Well, what about me? Does that mean I don't go to the hospital? Does that mean that I... Don't visit people when they're sick or tell them about Jesus if they don't know him yet. No, of course I do that. But according to Ephesians 4, I don't do it because I'm the pastor. I do it because I'm a church member. And my job as the pastor is to lead by example in those things and train everyone else to do them well as, as well. Right? Then my job as the pastor is to have people walk alongside of me as we all do those things together and teach other people how to do them really, really well. I mean, just think about it for a second. Do the math. If I were to, to devote 24 hours of my day to just working my tail off and doing all the ministerial stuff that, that happens in the life of a church, man, I think I could give you a pretty solid 24 hours. It may be even more efficient than anybody else. But at the end of those 24 hours, I'm going to be exhausted, right? And it may be a couple weeks before I get my head up off the pillow again. I could give you a solid 24 hours. But we have about 100 or so active members of our church. What happens if 
all of us are doing the work of ministry. Well, 100 people can knock out more in 30 minutes than I can in a full day, maybe even a full week, right? When the whole church is doing this thing, everybody receives the level of care that we, we, we actually want to give them, right? Like, like, the common refrain is, well, I just don't feel like I've been visited unless my pastor comes in. Fair enough. I'd be happy to come see. I'd love to come see. We'll hang out. But I've only got about three minutes that I can give you before I have to go to the next person who was only happy if the pastor came to see him, right? And so we'll do that. I would love for somebody to sit with you for an hour. If it's all on me, I can't sit with you for an hour. I've got I to move on to the next one, right? Oh, but our God is good enough that he has not set up his church that way. See, see, the church gets the kind of care that the church needs to get, that God wants to give to the church when everybody in the church is saying, yes, I will serve and I will serve in whatever ways God allows me, here I am. I will visit, I will counsel, I will come alongside. And God raises up gospel-proclaiming leaders in the life of the church to do exactly that and to train everyone else to do that well, too. So that when I'm doing my job well, as shepherd teacher, we have a lot more shepherd teachers in our church than just me. And we have a lot more people who have their needs being met but there were two reasons paul gave right to equip the saints for the work of ministry and what does it say after that for building up the body of christ so what happens when the whole work church is trained for the work of ministry when everybody's pouring in when everybody's serving every single person gets the kind of care that we want right every single person gets the kind of care and concern and 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 service in their life that we want to give them and the body is built up. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 again. For building up the body of Christ, or to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul says that these leaders are also responsible for protecting our church doctrinally and helping people to grow up into spiritual maturity. That seems like, like a common sense thing, right? says that left to our own devices that all of us have a tendency to fall victim to bad theology to be tossed to and fro by the waves and even sometimes taken advantage of the of by those who would seek to take advantage right so when these gospel proclaiming leaders are fulfilling their responsibilities that doesn't happen as often because everyone in here is growing maturity maturely uh, they are being shepherded toward spiritual maturity that everyone in here is growing up to be the type of person who then leads others to spiritual maturity and the body of christ is built up look at 15 rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in 
love. Paul says that even though we are a bunch of strange people with very unique perspectives and passions and skill sets, we are ultimately united together and we are one body. And this is the moment where we have to remind ourselves that we are operating in the context of therefore. You remember what I told you a couple weeks ago? That, that all of the commands on God, of God on our life, everything he's called us to do is a natural outflow, is a natural uh, lining ourselves up with who he's already joyfully declared us to be. If everything's dependent upon me to hold things together here, we might be in trouble. Right? Anybody else want to take that job? Thankfully, it's not up to me. Our good God has not set up his church that way. We're not holding anything together here. Each person has a part to play. The leaders are raised up, have their part to play as well, but it's not the leader's body, it's Jesus's body. And look what happens when we all play our roles and trust Jesus together. The back end of verse 16 again. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Growing churches are not always healthy churches. It is possible to draw a crowd around a train wreck, right? But healthy churches tend to be growing churches. That's not a rule. That's not a, that's not a if you do this, God's just going to explode your numbers. That's not, that's not explosive growth, and that may not even be like slow, constant growth. There's, there's ebbs and flows in the, in the life of a church. There are, there, are re, there are really fruitful seasons and there are seasons that are just kind of dry. But as a general rule, healthy churches trend, trend towards growth. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I think we've been in a healthy season lately. I think God's been doing some good things here. Are there, is there more health to pursue? Yeah. But healthy churches tend to grow. So what do we do with a text like this, right? I mean, it's a, Jesus gave people with giftings to be leaders in the church, and we're going to try real hard to serve each other, right? But what do we do with a text like this? How do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response this morning is to press into God by trusting his goodness and his care for you. He has seen fit to provide his church through incredible means. He has gifted people in special ways to lead, in special ways to serve. We trust his provision in that, right? We press into the community that God has seen fit to give us here the trust that he's working all these things out. And listen, if you're here and you're one of the people that he's gifted in special ways to be a gospel proclaimer, whether that's a stage thing or a small group thing or, or a nursery thing, if, he, if you're one of the people that God has equipped especially to be gospel proclaimers here, man, we, we better hold that responsibility faithfully. We can't halfway do that one because there's something on the line here, right? We press into his community. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to put action to what God is doing and calling you to this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I say all the time that I hope this is a, 
a safe place for you to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. God has seen fit to gift his church, each local body, with, with all these things that make it this beautiful mosaic. And, and we got to work out weird details sometimes, but it's this good thing that we're, that we're happy to have. But listen, before you can be a part of this weird mosaic, you've you got to be a part of the church, right? The Bible says that because of your sin, you're separated from God. Before you can be a part of the church, before you can be one of the saints, you've got to be declared holy. And because of that sin, that's, that's a massive problem. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus comes and pays the debt for that sin. That he laid his life down so that you wouldn't have to. So this morning, maybe you're, maybe you're here today and you want to, for the very first time, repent of your sin and trust in him alone. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some fellow ministers up here at the front to talk to you. That's something that's helpful for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. God, there's some things that, there's some things in there that are hard to understand sometimes. There are things in there that we'd rather ignore sometimes. But God, you are a God who provides for your people far deeper than just stuff. You're the victorious king and it's yours and your right alone to give out gifts as you see fit. God, for those of us in here who know you, would you draw us to yourself this morning? Would you, would you make yourself known in a way that's deeper than what we're used to? With that love, that you, that you have for us show itself in the love of the church for the body. Whether it's leadership or somebody who's not, would you help us see that you are building something here that is far bigger than us? That you are doing something here that has eternal consequences? Would you help us press in this morning? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you draw them to yourself? Would you make yourself known to them right now? Would they see their need for a Savior? Would they see their need for your Lordship? Would they see you? I'm convinced that when we see you, we are forever changed by that. So in your name we pray.